This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network. Visit us at fmpods.com. When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. I married Isis on the fifth day of May, but I could not hold on to her very long. So I cut off my hair and I rode straight away for the wild, unknown country where I could not go wrong. This is Pod Dylan that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, part of the FM Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly. And joining us once again to talk about Isis is fellow Bobcat Pete Bylone. Hi, Pete. Hi, Rob. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to have you back on the show. Last time you were here, we talked about John Brown, uh, which mm. is an absolutely terrific song. And you're here for a very specific reason. I mean, of course, I love having guests back on. That, that's a part of Pod Dylan. But uh, last year, I ran a contest. I don't know if that's even really right, the word for it. I had a kind of drawing where whoever made a donation to the organization known as Equality Texas would be entered into a drawing and the winner of that, whoever I picked out of that, out of that list of people that would be nice enough to donate, I said the prize would be you could come back on the show and discuss any song you want. Even if it was a song we had just covered, didn't matter. I figured if you were nice enough to make a donation, that's your prize. So you, Pete, were the winner of that. A bunch of people made donations to Equality Texas. We'll talk about that in a second. But uh, again, you were nice enough to make a donation. And so you picked ISIS, which we mm-hmm. have covered on the show. We did it back in episode 64 with my pal Omar Uden, but that was a while ago. And I'm perfectly happy to redo songs. And you told me that you have a very peculiar theory or particular theory about this song. And so I am very excited to hear it. But before we get to that, I just want to say thank you for making a donation to Equality Texas. I very much appreciate it. Oh, Rob, it was my pleasure. Thank you for for bringing some attention to the, to the cause, you know, for putting it out there that uh, there are organizations that could use our help. That's get, get boosting their signals is uh, a big part of making change. Absolutely. I mean, I'll say equality Texas from their website, their mission statement, they work to secure full equality for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer Texans through political action, education, community organizing, and collaboration. And Trans rights are human rights, gay rights are human rights, and I was very bothered by some of the laws being passed down in Texas that seemed aimed at LGBTQ plus people, and so that is why I ran this contest. And unfortunately, since then, I, I said it's been taking a while to finally put this episode together, laws have been springing up all over the country that are very similar to the laws in Texas, and if I may quote from my one of my favorite movies of all time, Inherit the Wind. Spencer Tracy playing the the lawyer, Henry Drummond, where he says, you cannot administer a wicked law impartially. You can only destroy. You can only punish. And I warn you that a wicked law like cholera destroys everyone it touches, its upholders, as well as its defiers. So any of you interested in this cause, go check out Equality Texas. Again, you can find it online. Once again, I thank you for making that donation. And I thank everybody who was nice enough to make a donation uh, once I put that uh, drawing out there last year. And this will not be the only time I will do something like this. So, okay. Bold choice, Pete. ISIS. (laughs) Because 
Isis is one of those songs that obviously, like the you know, I say the average person who is aware of Bob Dylan, right, knows the hits. They know mm-hmm. Rolling Stone and you know sure. all, all those songs. They don't Watchtower, know this sure. yeah, Watchtower. They don't know this song because this was not a hit. It was not like a single or anything like that. But once you get past that initial layer of fan and you'd go a little deeper, right? Then you get into the people that own most of the records, know them really well. I don't know a Bob Dylan fan who doesn't love ISIS. I don't like this is this song has appeared on more lists for guests that have wanted to come on. Everyone likes ISIS. Good Lord. Like probably the most famous fanzine about Bob Dylan is called ISIS for Mm -hmm. Pete's sakes. I mean, this is the song. I am dying to hear what your cockamamie might be theory about this song is. So, 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 okay. So, so lay it on me. Lay, what, what is your theoryist in your okay. mind? What okay. is ISIS let, about, at least to you? Let me, let me set this up just a little, uh, before we, before we jump into the, the interpretation. So I, you're, you're absolutely right. ISIS is a great song. This is the first song of his that I fell in love with. I found Bob through the, uh, Biograph box set. And and the version of ISIS that is on Biograph is uh it was is just so moving, it's so energetic and so riveting for me. I couldn't get enough of it when I when when I first started listening to him. I think the reason that it's so popular is is I mean a there's two versions, so you know if you're the more energetic type, you 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 can be drawn to that one. If you're the more uh, laid back type, you can go and find your your joy in that version of the song. <laughs> but but it's also a you know, Bob does his cinematic story songs, uh, and this is one of them, but, but it's also not as, I don't think it's as well defined. I don't think he, he spells things out quite as well. So it's more open to interpretation. So I think we all get to kind of imprint what we're hearing him say on top of the song so that it's very, for me, it's individualized. And I, I think, I think my take, I, I would call it less a, less a theory and more an interpretation is very personal to me. It's a journey that I that I can sympathize with, that I empathize with, that that uh, that yeah, I relate to, and, and which is what kind of makes it makes it so makes it stick with me so much. So that's the that's and and the reason <laughs> the reason I even started putting these uh, these thoughts to paper, as it were, was a, a a very dear friend asked me what my favorite Bob Dylan song was, and I told her that it was ISIS, and. She challenged me about how it was a song about marriage and about how he leaves his wife and comes back to her and he's not a very good husband. And, and I said, no, no, no. I was like, no, that's the surface. Like you're just listening to the surface. That's, that's the window dressing. That's not what the story's about. That's like you're taking it literally and it's not that at all. Uh, so to convince her, I wrote this whole, I'm, I'm going to stop short of calling it a manifesto, but, uh, <laughs> I I spelled it all out. I've got a short story here about what this song means pretty much line by line uh to me. And and I think it holds up. I think it makes sense. Uh, you know, I'm I like to think I'm a pretty smart person that can tell a story. So uh, I think I've got some interesting uh some tidbits to share here uh about this song and where I think what I think Bob's trying to communicate with it. And I understand even as I say that how ridiculous it is to try and assume that I know what Bob's trying to communicate, but I'm going to tell you what he says to me. All right, fair enough. I mean, to be fair, Bob, this is one of the few songs where you actually have audio evidence of Bob telling people what it's about. I right. mean, we've literally got him on stage saying, this is a song about marriage. It's called ISIS. You're like, right. well, thanks, Bob. But it, okay. 
<laughs> yeah, but I but I think in typical Bob fashion, he's saying one thing and it's a red herring. It's throwing you off. No, uh, I think yeah. doing hard that? to believe, I can't, right? I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah, he's always so straightforward in his interviews. <laughs> so, like I said, I, I I go pretty much line by line, and and we'll just go through it and and, uh, and see where this conversation takes us. I guess. Okay. Okay, I want to start with the fact that this woman, this 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 being, is named Isis. Okay, that's not a that's not a common English name. It's not something that you hear every day. Uh, I, I've got some stats here. In 1960, uh, only two out of every million babies born were named Isis. So, uh, uh, yeah, 0.01 percent. Oh, that was 0.01 percent is the peak of popularity for Isis. That was in 2005. So this is not a name that we hear all the time. So it's not you know Rebecca or or uh, Sarah or any of the so any of the names that we've heard in his songs before. And I think that that's got some significance. Isis is a is an Egyptian god. Mm-hmm. It's the divine female spirit, but it's also the the goddess who, of resurrection. She re- resurrected uh, her husband, brother. Uh, the gods have weird relationships, but she's linked with creation and rebirth. And Bob is an artist that is constantly in a state of rebirth. He's constantly changing from you know folky, uh, oaky Bob to rock and roll Bob to country Bob to Christian Bob. You know, it's just, he's, he's like Bowie in the fact that they're always evolving. And I think that that's got a lot to do with his, I think that they're related. I think the, the choice of Isis as a resurrection deity uh, is, is intentional. So we talked through uh, his, uh, the fifth day of May, I think is a, I think is symbolic of the start of his career. When he wrote this song, he was, uh, not terribly far along. And, uh, the fifth day of May would be, uh, what, just after the first quarter of, of his life. If you're looking at, if you're looking at the calendar as a timeline. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, uh, that that's what is coming through in that particular lyric. You don't think Cinco de Mayo, there's no connection to the, at least no. in your mind, there's Cinco de Mayo. No. There's no, okay. All right. No, I, I, I don't. I, I, it's not senior. If it was in senior, I'd say, yeah, but, <laughs> but in ISIS, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I don't think that I don't think that the day itself holds any significance other than that it's uh, a point in time fairly early on in the year. And I and there was a story that I read, and I can't remember the name of the person that he wrote the song with, but that it was, was just Jacques, a line. Jacques Levy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, thank you. They just like that was just a line they spit out. That was just they came up with that. There was no rhyme or reason for it, so I, I'm going to go with have the that, theory. It does have that great internal rhyme, which we know right. Bob loves. Day, right. day of May, it's got a great. It's the only month right. that you can really do that. And and once I, th- I think once they again just organically came up with that, they kind of built the song uh, around it. So I cut off my hair and I rode straight away for the wild unknown country where I could not go wrong. Um, and this is where I start to get a little nervous because <laughs> we we know we know that. It's foolish, and he's told us that these lyrics, his lyrics, are aren't autobiographical, right? He's told us, you know, don't these aren't stories about me. Uh, don't try and read into my life in these songs. But I think if you look at, I think this song actually is fairly autobiographical, uh, and that's kind of the whole the whole gist of the theory. So cutting off his hair and 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 rode straight away. Uh, the, when he wrote this song, it was. The end of his rock and roll era, right? It was 1967, I believe. Yes. Yes. I like where this is going, Pete. I like so, it. <laughs> so famously, Bob had that huge 
afro looking haircut at the time and soon after uh he he was coming off tour in 67 what he do he moved himself and his family and the band and they all went to woodstock mm-hmm. in big pink which if if you've never been there is certainly a wild unknown country and he was away from the limelight he was away from the critics he was away from anybody demanding anything of him so really he could do no wrong uh so you've got him cutting off his hair right he went to like the next time we saw him he was close cropped country bob and and again moving to woodstock with the band he was just getting away from the spotlight he had to escape the pressure that was his life at that time i mean he was the biggest artist in the world in 67 and he's getting away from the music scene as it existed you know right. the psychedelia kind of stuff he's getting he's 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 turning into a country artist at almost the exact in terms of commercial prospects, the almost exact wrong time in the culture for you to do that. I uh, uh, totally agree. And, and I think if there was a, if there was ever a, a case study to be held up about what actions, how you should behave if you want to burn yourself out, I think his, his, uh, his life in 66, 67 is certainly a model for that. Yeah. But he was pushing very hard all the time, uh, keeping up this persona, which, I don't think is genuine Bob. I'm sure that there were substances involved. I'm sure there were a lot of late nights involved and just show after show. And, and, and I think it took its toll on him, which is how he ends up in Woodstock. And yeah, taking the, the country route is absolutely, uh, going counter against, uh, whatever forces would encourage him to continue that meteoric rise that he was on. So it's very, uh, yeah, I, I feel like that's. Like that, those couple lines tie into, uh, to moving himself to Woodstock. Uh, so he came to a high place of darkness and light. The dividing line ran through the center of town. I hitched up my pony to a post on the right, went into the laundry to wash my clothes down. So at first I thought, uh, I thought the high place was elevation. Like it was, like he was, I mean, again, Woodstock's not exact. I wouldn't call that in the mountains, but it's, you know, it's New York. It's it's not a, a low spot for sure. It's not Louisiana. But I think uh what he what this actually means, the high place is actually a spiritual place. It's a it's a uh like a place of reckoning. And I'm not sure, I don't want to like get into specific religions. It could be it could be purgatory, it could be the bardo, uh it could be any kind of of holding area for those that are on a spiritual journey. And I, I think that in this metaphor, in this story he's telling, he arrives here having a decision to make, right? He's got to choose his path at this point. Uh, so we've, we've transported in those couple lines from the, from the, uh, the wild unknown country is, a, I believe, a physical space. And now we've, we've transferred to like a metaphysical kind of area. So, uh, so the, he says it's got a darkness and light in that order, right? Darkness and light, just as a, as a point of reference. If I tell you, uh, something in sequence, we're we're naturally inclined to assign those things left to right because that's how we read. I think uh, I'm not really going to get into the the psychology of that, but darkness and light. So on the left side I've got darkness, on the right side I've got light. So he takes his pony and he hitches it up to the right. So he's choosing to go into the light side of things, into the the good, if you will, the white hat versus the dark hat. Uh, and then I've got something here. Let me look at my notes quick about. Washing our clothes. So in a, in a typical Western story, which I'm, I, you know, with the mountains and the horses and it feels very much like a Western, the cowboy would ride into the town. He'd secure his horse 
and he'd go directly into a saloon. I mean, how have we ever seen the saloon or the jail? Like those are the two places right. yeah. people seem to go whenever they right. got into town. But this guy, he goes into the laundry. Okay. Now washing our clothes is a is a metaphor that can mean many things. It can be uh he can be taking account of uh, an accounting of his behavior and wanting to clean himself up, or it could be an indication of making a superficial or surface level change, right? Putting on clean clothes because it changes our presentation, but we're still the same underneath, right? And one interpretation that I found interesting, uh, but perhaps is a is a bit of a stretch, is in is in dream analysis, right? Washing clothes may indicate a feeling that the narrator isn't pushing himself, that he's stuck in a routine and isn't accomplishing all that he can. So that's that's from a dream analysis uh, encyclopedia sort of thing. So we've got a bunch of different ways to look at this washing of the clothes in lieu of in lieu of getting a, a beer, but put it all together and you've got somebody who's arrived at a place where where there's a decision to be made. He's got two choices right in front of him right in the beginning, darkness and light. He chooses light and immediately goes to change something about himself, whether it's a superficial change or, or or looking back at how he's been and wanting to change that and proceed in a new direction. I'll leave that up to whoever's listening right now. But, hmm. but for me, that's, that's where this character is at. He's chosen light. He's gotten away from, I believe the rock and roll of it all, the, the lifestyle that was driving him to, madness it seems and he's got to change and he knows he's got to change uh so the next line uh a man in the corner approached me for a match i knew right away he was not ordinary <laughs> i love that what a curious way of describing someone it it really is right he was it, not is or, a, you would say they're extraordinary that's how you right. would describe he was not ordinary. it's the opposite he's he's not ordinary what a weird Correct. way of describing somebody and i and i again i think bob is a is a master wordsmith and i think that that's intentional Right. I think, I think a match, when he says, approach me for a match, we, he wants us to think cigarette. He wants us to think that sort of, that sort of match. But I think what it actually is, is a, a, we're the same. We're, we're a match, you and I. And he's not ordinary, right? He's recognized. And by saying we're a match and this guy isn't ordinary means that I'm not ordinary either. And the, the guide is not. Uh, this is, this is our first clue that, that this guy, this, uh, this Virgil, if you will, that's gonna, that's gonna, uh, help Bob along his journey. He's not, he's, he's not of this world. He's not typical. He's not, he is definitely something outside of what is expected, which, I mean, you can pick that up from not ordinary. Yeah. But again, I, I think the, I think the purpose of the match is what's important there and saying that you and I have a kindred spirit. You and I have something in common. And, uh, and it's not ordinary. Uh, so he says, are you looking for something easy to catch? I said, I got no money. He said, it ain't necessary. And I love the way he sings that line. They ain't necessary. <laughs> sorry for everyone listening. I'm sorry. I shouldn't sing, but something easy to catch. That means that he's offering something to the narrator without the narrator having to do the requisite work or, or struggle to achieve it. Right. And something easy to catch could be attention, adoration, as an artist, Dylan uh, transitioned from folk balladeer to rock hero, uh, and he would be met with all the accolades that a proud person would think he deserved. I think I think that uh, you know at some point we all would like to have that uh, that amount of attention, 
right? That amount of, of admiration for what we're doing for to be, to be acknowledged as like the best who's ever done it. We all think we want that. And I, I, I emphasize think because I think Bob got it and realized this isn't what I want at all. Mm -hmm. Right. So he thinks that, that this, that this narrator is offering him a, a Faustian bargain where he can give him all those accolades, all that easy stuff to get. And it, and it, the line "I ain't got no money" it, it reminds me. And this is a this is a stretch. I understand. And this whole thing is a stretch. Just I'm going <laughs> to keep saying that throughout. So if you get, you, I won't get hate mail because nobody knows who I am, Rob. But <laughs> right. if you get hate mail saying you had a lunatic on your show talking about this song, <laughs> I apologize to you up front and everyone. Just save your breath. I know I'm a lunatic, so it won't cost. Uh, so the uh, "I ain't got no money, man." It ain't necessary. What I think of when I hear that line is the little mermaid and ursula saying it won't cost much just your voice that's the that's the money ain't necessary it's going to cost you something else and that's the i i think that that's the 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 intention of that line right the narrator's offering him something easy to get and bob or the narrator sorry not bob the narrator says i don't have the money i can't i can't take you up on that And the guy's like don't worry about money man that's not what it's going to cost you Okay, I mean, huh. and feel free to chime in here, Rob, because okay. I feel like I'm I, talking I, an inordinate amount. I, I am not. Uh, I well, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. To um, I don't even want to use the argue. It's not. It's not an argument. I, I but I, I'm not going to try and refute each verse as we go through because it's a long sure. song and we get the show can't be four hours long. Yeah, yeah. I will say that for this verse, I'll tell you what my interpretation of this verse was, mm-hmm. and we'll see where we already are like. The dividing line is 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 going off here. <laughs> through the center it's, of town. We know where the yeah, dividing line is. Yeah, through the center is. of town. Okay. I figured the line about the man in the corner approached me for a match is just scene setting. That's mm-hmm. they're just they're telling a story and they're setting a scene that this guy what you know, the, he's in this weird uh as I've mentioned in other shows, like you know, these universes that Bob Dylan songs exist in, uh-huh. they seem to be old timey, but maybe not. They could may, right. maybe they're modern, maybe not, you know. So in this world, he's entered the town, and this is not a place where strangers are going to go up to each other and just talk, right? That's a weird thing. So, okay, what's what's an excuse? Oh, a ma- you got a match? Like, that's a way to start a conversation that sounds sure. benign. So, to me, that is scene setting. So, then he says, I knew right away he was not ordinary. I mean, the guy's kind of interesting. He's not just like a regular schmo, and maybe even the narrator of the song, we'll say Bob for all intents and purposes, just in this, just a shorthand. This is Bob is saying, Oh, this guy is more than just a regular guy. He's kind of memorable for some reason, but he says, are you looking for something easy to catch? Right. This guy mm-hmm. is sensing that the guy who has just ridden into town and has washed his clothes is looking for something. And he sees this guy as a Mark. He sees our narrator as a Mark. Now, the narrator is saying immediately defensive, thinking, I don't want this guy to think I'm a pigeon. So he's like, I ain't got no money. Right. And right. It, it, what it reminds me of the treasure of the Sierra Madre, which a mm. movie I am sure Bob Dylan has seen some one of, of the great, great movies ever made. But there's this whole bit where Humphrey Bogart is constantly chased through this town by this little boy played by uh, Robert Blake, uh, who just oh, wow. passed away recently, but he was a child actor, Robert Blake. And he's always going like uh, lotto money, lotto tickets, mister. He's doing the scam. Mm -hmm. And he's always telling me, I don't have any money. I don't have any money, kid. The narrator's saying, I got no money. 
like, look, I, I think I get the sense you're trying to rope me into some scam. Sure. I don't have any money, so don't even bother. I have no money from which that you could bilk me from. So leave me alone. But then the mm-hmm. guy is like, well, that ain't necessary. So now it's like, oh, well, maybe this guy's on the level. Uh-huh. because The thing that he wants from me, I would normally expect would be money, but he's telling me he doesn't want my money. So that's kind of it. So that to me is the scene setting of this, of this story. Sure. This guy with the match sees this guy as like, he's an easy mark, but I'm going to do it in a way that is atypical and that I'm not going to just ask him for money. So that's where I am on, on this particular verse. Sure. And, and, and if I choose to look at it as a, as like the story is the story mm. that, that what he's saying, he's actually rode into an actual town. He physically tied a horse off. He physically mm-hmm. went to the laundromat. Then I agree with you, right? That's all that the, all those all signs point to uh, that kind of exchange that you just explained. I just, I think that there's a, I think that again, I think that's a surface level thing that is a distraction. That's just my my take on it. I think that right. it's a, it's a a deeper story still. So uh, so moving on, we set out that night for the cold in the north. I gave him my blanket. He gave me his word. I said, "Where are we going?" He said, "We'd be back by the fourth. I said, "That's the best news that I've ever heard." Now, just common sense says that starting a journey at night is not the way you do it. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody, nobody kicks off at sunset to go riding on a horse through the mountain pass that in no movie or historical thing ever, unless they were under extreme duress, do people travel at night, right? They all, they, they get down, they set up the fire, they sleep, they're ready to move during the day. So I think that the night setting off in the night is actually a symbolic has a symbolic meaning because that's when the narrator uh, is at most risk. That's his darkest time, uh, and, and I will I will come back and flesh this point out more later. But I just want to bring that up here as a as a we'll stick a pin in it and be like, remember I said that thing about about being setting off at his darkest time. I believe that the 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 blanket that they provide to the to the guide is is his. And again, people, please, I'm a lunatic. This is crazy, but I think that the the blanket is actually his body. He's he's giving this stranger the permission to direct him, to inhabit him, and and animate him to go on this journey to 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 allow him to go. And that's that's uh, in exchange for here. Here's my vessel to use. Uh, he's going to get these things that he's been promised. And the next few lines, the questions when they ask the question, "Where are we going?" He said, "We'll be back by the fourth. That makes no sense. There's no, there's no rhyme or reason for those two things being together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he doesn't question it. He just he says that's the best news I've ever heard. But clearly, the narrator is not fully in control of his faculties at this point. Right? He's struggling. This guy's not making any sense. He's been promised these things. He's about to set off on a journey with some dude he, he just met. And the question becomes at this point, is the guide, again, assuming that we're in some metaphysical spiritual realm, is this guide a a evil presence? Is he a, like a, a demonic spirit almost? Or is he just the worst part, worst parts of the narrator's nature, which is why they were a match before? That's why they're the same or, or they have those similarities. You know, the town is split between darkness and light. Well, wouldn't it make sense that our narrator 
choosing to go to the light would run into his darkness. And that's who our, that's who our guide is, I believe, which is, which now it makes more sense why the blanket is letting the darkness drive for a while, letting me, and we've all done this. We've all let our, the worst parts of our nature influence us at times and drive us to do things that we probably given our druthers would not have done, but, <laughs> but we do them. Uh, and I think that that's what Bob's, ex- what, what the narrator is, is explaining here is this darker part of me, these dark urges, impulses, I'm going to let them take me to something easy to catch. I'm going to let them take me to what I want, what I, what I desire. And, and, and the bargain is he gets to control me. And I just want to touch again real quick that although I think the 5th of May is a, is a, is a not significant date, I think there is something to the fact that at this point he says we'll be back by the 4th because I think that what he's starting to set up is that this is a, a an almost never-ending cycle. It's, it's the cycle of rebirth, of regeneration, of, of going through this journey and coming out a new person again. And, and we're going to see, I don't want to give away whatever, uh, but being back by the fourth, if you're getting married on the fifth, you have to be back by the fourth. Right. It's you're, we're, we're going to be back the day before the, the day the that's way. already been mentioned. Yeah. Right. Which, which I know if you're taking it as an actual story as an anniversary, but in this case, I think it's going back to the wedding again. Uh, so we, we uh, and I understand, again, that's a stretch, but that's fine. Uh, I was thinking about turquoise. I was thinking about gold. I was thinking about diamonds and the world's biggest ne- necklace. So this is the narrator saying that he's totally seduced by riches, by fame, by fortune, a buried treasure, uh, a pursuit that carries no, that there's no negative connotation right now to what he's seeking. Right, he's got no reason to think that there's anything nefarious going on here. He just wants the riches. He wants to be rich, uh, but that's that's establishing the narrator's motivation again. Having chosen the light, he's just looking for something good. Uh, so the next lines: As we rode through the canyons, through the devilish cold, I was thinking about Isis, how she thought I was so reckless. So the devilish cold for me, that's one of the main indications that that we're dealing with something nefarious here. We're dealing with a, a journey that is not completely on the up and up. Hmm. It's devilish cold. Um, and again, going back to the the not ordinariness of his guide uh, being somewhat a dark spirit. So, and then the, the, the last line, the, the, um, the line about Isis thinking he was reckless. That one, that one I'm going to admit is probably the one that I'm least sure about. I think he's ruminating on points of friction with Isis. Um, like, like thinking if like, how could she think that about me? How could she think that I was reckless? Uh, or, or um, if he's starting to like come out of his, of his, of his stupor, right. If he's starting to realize that he might not be in the best situation uh, currently, you know, riding with this guide, he might be starting to realize that Isis is correct. That mm-hmm. what am I doing? That I am being reckless. And holy cow, she's been right this whole time, and I've been pushing back. Uh, and and for me, I think he's starting to appreciate that I'm not making good decisions right now, that I've put myself <laughs> in danger. And again, put all this on, on the backdrop of 66, 67, and, and again, the way he's pushing himself so hard, the way that that's what he was just coming from at this point. And I think he's opening his eyes to the fact that 
what I was doing was not healthy. It was not smart. And it was not true to me as an artist. I was seeking the turquoise and the gold, but it had, it, but it had a darker underbelly to it that he wasn't aware of. Two, two things about that. First of all, mm. uh, you, you mentioned the whole necessary where the way he sings necessary. Uh-huh. The, when he sings world's biggest necklace, he sings it in a way that nobody else would. Like mm-hmm. he just Agreed. the inflections, world's biggest necklace. Like it's such a weird yeah. way of singing it, which is what makes it so memorable. You just can't right. imagine any other pop singer say, well, writing the song, but even if they did, just <laughs> singing it, singing it the way he sings it, the inflections that he puts, world's biggest necklace. It's just such a strange, memorable way. But you're again, yes, we don't want to, you know, try necessarily tie this into like, oh, it's about his life because he keeps saying mm. that it isn't. But of course, that's exactly what he would say. But your theory, I like this theory because I think about when he when he gets married, right? We know he gets married in late 1965, right? Mm-hmm. Right at the moment, like he now they were together, him and Sarah Lowndes were together for a little while before this, but they get married right as he is at the apogee of his craziness of the you know the truth attacks and the you know doing the methamphetamines and pushing himself like that's when she joins up with him is when he is absolute (laughs) and his craziest and so you could almost imagine it's like wow like slow down buddy you know we just got married and i've got a daughter one i've got a daughter i gotta uh take care of what are you doing so i you know yes if if you if you're inclined to say this song is not autobiographical, then you can just dismiss it entirely. But if you do, I like you can pair that line up and say, yeah, that that it's you're kind of reckless, you know. And yeah, I think it's kind of right because right, I'm off doing this crazy thing. She ended up being right. Right. We also have the uh, you know the infamous motorcycle accident in this time period too. Mm-hmm. So uh, and nobody really knows all the details of that, but you don't get typically. I I ride a motorcycle. I never laid it down without being reckless. Uh, <laughs> kind of how that works. Um, so moving on. So how she told me one day we would meet up again and things would be different the next time we wed. If I could only hang on and just be her friend, I still can't remember all the best things she said. So here's Isis telling her they're going to meet again, right? Even when he left, she said they're going to meet again. And the next time they met, it would be different. But why would it be different? I believe that the reason it's different is going back to the cycle of rebirth. The next time the narrator meets Isis, he's going to be different. He's going to have gone through things that make him a different person when he approaches her. Uh, he'll be less impulsive. Uh, he'll be more steady. He'll be more mature. And whatever he's learning through during this iteration, which is why I kind of likened it to the Bardo early on, whatever he's learning through this journey, he's going to implement into his next cycle of rebirth. And And the fact that she says the next time we wed instead of things will be different the next time we met, which would Mm -hmm. have worked just as well. Mm -hmm. The next time we wed is telling us that it's not a wedding in the sense, in a, in the human sense that it happens once and it's, and when you break it up, it's, it's done. It's, it's a, again, the rebirth, you're going to come back different. We're going to do this again. You're going to come back different. We're going to do this again. And we're going to see that I'm going to try to convince you that ISIS is less a woman and more the divine spirit of his his muse his creativity so he's going to go through a cycle which we you know we talked through in the beginning uh you know i'm going to be a folk singer and i'm going to write folk songs and i'm going to write protest songs 
and I'm going to learn a bunch of stuff doing that and people aren't going to like it. And I'm not going to like the way people respond to me. So I'm going to start writing rock and roll songs. And then I'm going to learn from this and, you know, I'm going to make some bad decisions and it's going to push me really hard. And I'm going to take a break. And when I come back, I'm going to be a country star and I'm going to sing country songs and and be more relaxed. And then I'm going to go on, uh, you know, the, the never ending tour or not the never ending tour, but the rolling thunder tour. And we're going to do that sort of carnival atmosphere. And then we're going to like, it's just a constant rebirth where he's constantly coming back to his muse and saying, okay, I want to do something different. Now I've learned, I want to do something completely different. And that's where I think the, the next time we wed comes into play is the next time you come around and you're ready to, to be reborn. We're going to do it different. I'm liking this, um, Pete. I'm liking it. Like I gotta say, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, so the question is, at this point, will the narrator be ready on the fifth of May? Will he be ready when the time to get wed again comes around? That's what this journey is about. That's why it's important to be back by the fourth, which we've already touched on. He knows that he's uh, he hasn't been able to handle whatever Isis is, whatever you choose to make Isis. He could not hold on to her, right? That's the very beginning of the song. I couldn't hold on to her. I had this, I had this image, this, this inspiration, this muse that was driving me, and I lost it. And I've got to go through this process to get back to her. I've got to go through this learning process to rediscover myself, to learn, to grow, and to find that muse again. Which brings us to uh, the next line is, we came to a pyramid all embedded in ice. <laughs> Just such a wonderful inversion of what you're expecting. It, it, because- it absolutely is. The, the pyramids are not where there's going to be ice. <laughs> that's exactly, that's exact. First of all, you've got the connection of ISIS and pyramids that I want to point out. But then also, right, the pyramids and ice, since when? Yeah. This isn't, this isn't like some natural disaster movie. Uh, this has got to be now, it's got to be some otherworldly place, some place where, uh, where normal rules don't apply. That uh, there is no place on earth that I know of that there are pyramids embedded in ice. And, right. Lord knows that the rate that ice caps are melting, we may find them, but to date, we don't have them. When he wrote it in 1976. Right, right, correct. So uh, he said, this is the next line, sorry. He said, there's a body I'm trying to find. If I carry it out, it'll bring a good price. Twas then that I knew what he had on his mind. Okay, so this is where the guide, who I referred to as Virgil before, kind of morphs into an anti-Virgil. He's saying that he's got... Uh, this thing that he's after that isn't isn't on the up and up. It's not gold. It's not jewels. It's it's a body. He's trying to rob a grave out of one of these pyramids, out of you know a, a sarcophagus. I'm sure. And uh, and what he's trying to do is convince the narrator <clears throat> that he'll you know he tried to he tried to convince him that he had the money and the power to wet those appetites that he was after. But he's taking him on a journey, literally literally through hellish conditions, right? Devilishly cold in the hopes that the narrator's spirit will break. And the guide, this dark force can return as the permanent inhabitant of the narrator's body. So the body he's trying to find is the narrator's himself. He's he's trying to break his spirit by tempting him with things very, very biblical in that, in that, in that viewing of it. I'm going to tempt you with things that you want. And when you go after them, it's going to be your downfall. And this is, of course, this lines up with the fact that the the narrator, in my interpretation, has already ceded control of his body to the guide to get this journey started in the first place. So the the goal of the guide is to, like I said, break the spirit or kill the light 
that is inside the narrator. He, uh, he understands, the narrator understands with that last line that the guide has a grave robbing intention, but I'm not sure at that point that he fully grasps that it's his soul that he's fighting for. Right. I think, I think there's still that, that surface level story and the underneath story kind of getting, uh, wishy, like mishmashed in there where you can read it both ways, uh, and not be wrong in either direction. Uh, I think he, I think the narrator suspects that something is up, obviously, but he's determined to follow. I mean, what is he going to do at this point? Right. Turn around and ride back. He's still got the promise of fortune ahead of him, which I think has taken a back seat now at this point. I don't think that he's pursuing the fortune at this point as much as he's determined to see this commitment through uh, in a way that perhaps he hasn't in a pa- in the past. Uh, and I'm not completely settled on that, but, <laughs> but uh, it feels like if I'm a reckless person, if I'm an inconsistent person, I- I'll show you I made this commitment. I'm going through with it because he knows at that point that there are no gold. There's no jewels to be had. So the wind, it was howling and the snow was outrageous. We chopped through the night and we chopped through the dawn. When he died, I was hoping that it wasn't contagious, hmm. but I made up my mind that I had to go on. Okay. So the weather's intensifying the closer they get to their destination. And this is, I mean, this is a common fantasy trope, right? As you get closer to the, the mystical thing that you need to get, everything's conspiring against you. The weather's getting worse. The trees are growing vines. Just everything's going to do what it can to stop, to stop you from getting there. And in this particular tale, I think it's also capturing the uh, the idea that it's always darkest before the dawn, uh, that that things are at their absolute worst right there as they're approaching daylight. Uh, the guide, right, the shadow that is taking him on this journey is just doing everything he can to wear him down. He's throwing everything he can at him. We've driven through the, the cold. We've r- ridden all night. We're chopping through. I don't know what, because if you're if you're in a place that's that's buried in ice i'm not sure what you're chopping through but it sounds like to me it sounds like vines or or underbrush or something which again doesn't make sense given the given the the climate that they've described but well if it's embedded in ice they're chopping through the ice sure that okay yeah that actually makes a lot of sense rob thank you i i by the way i love the describing snow as outrageous which is like what, what what sane person describes snow like that who, who wow. would go? The snow was outrageous. Yeah. Nobody, <laughs> no, yeah. Nobody, I don't think, you know, I, I think that's somebody that's from Florida that is all of a sudden find themselves in Buffalo. That snow's and, outrageous. Yes, like, what? Right. What? Right. <laughs> but I think a lot, I think a lot of these things, like you, like you're pointing out, the, the, the weird way he's describing things and the weird way he's pronouncing things, I think all kind of lends itself to the, this isn't a normal place that we're talking about. This isn't a normal, set of circumstances in this verse bob manages to pronounce the word on as a h h h h h h n i had to go ah. Ah, that's right that's right he's uh, uh, there are some there's some great uh there are some great little nuggets in this song of bob just doing some absolutely bizarre stuff that is just sounds it's so perfect in this song um so we talked about always darkness but okay the narrator, like I said, the guide is trying to wear the narrator down, but he's as surprised as anybody that the narrator just keeps going. He just keeps chopping. He just keeps going. And he's determined now. He's determined. He's, he's got his, his mind is set on finding whatever it is they're supposed to find. And, uh, with that vigor, with that renewed vigor, he just, he keeps going. And 
the guide then becomes the one who uh, ends up succumbing to the elements, right? The guide dies. And it's, I think it's important to point out that the guide dies as, as the light comes back, right? We chop through the night and we chop through the dawn, Mm. right? So we get to the dawn and the next line is when he died. So the dawn is the, I mean, that's a archetype of illumination, hope, awakening, right? With the dawn, our narrator has survived the best efforts of his guide to turn him, to break him. And the light is awakening the hope, uh, the light and and the hope from the dawn is awakening the the spirit of the narrator and ends up killing the guide. Like that he can't he can no longer fight against the the powers of good to sound very cheesy here in this instance. But it's it's the it's the overcoming of all the efforts of that dark spirit and getting to the point where there is light and hope and joy again, and the spirit just dies. It it, it can't continue. Um the narrator says he he hopes it's not contagious. I think it, what he's saying there is that he hopes he's not affected in the same way, right? He recogn- I think he knows why the guy died and he hopes he's not affected in the same way because he feels like that light, that dawn light is a a light of judgment and while the the guy didn't make it, his the narrator's spirit has passed muster. It, it's been it's been deemed worthy to continue. So we go on to the next line. I broke into the tomb, but the casket was empty. There was no jewels, no nothing. I felt I'd been had. So the narrator, now with no reason whatsoever to continue this endeavor, except stubbornness, except commitment, except to see this through, because he doesn't even know what body he's going to get. So he expects to find all the things he's been promised and finds nothing. No body, no jewels, no gold. Uh, the, 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 this treasures, which again, I think are symbolic of the, the fame and the rock god status that, that was his there in the late sixties turn out to not be there. There, there is nothing where he finds himself that he wants. So at that point, he says, when I saw that my partner was just being friendly, when I took up his offer, I must have been mad. So this is the last vestige of the narrator's kind of all shucks, uh, country rube spirit. Uh, he assigns the ruse to the guide's desire to give him what he was looking for, right? I, I, he was just being friendly. Uh, I think there's room here to give a, a little more definite presence to the guide. But but for me, this line is a, a continuation of the expression of innocence and uh, naivete on the part of the narrator. The, the very Midwestern, oaky, kind of uh, innocent uh, spirit. Uh, the last line is a callback to the line about ice is thinking he is reckless. Uh, he came to accept that he was re- reckless and maybe always has been, but he's grown on this adventure, right? He's committed to this. He's seen it through and, and he's survived the trials that have been placed in front of him. He's not reckless. He's triumphant at this point. And, and, and he stands here looking at this empty coffin, understanding the folly that was chasing after the promise of golden jewels. He must have been mad to chase these things. So I picked up his body and I dragged him inside, threw him down in the hole. And I put back the cover. <laughs> I said a quick prayer and I felt satisfied depending on which version you want. Either I felt satisfied or just to feel satisfied. Then I rode back to find ISIS just to tell her I love her. So for me, this is the, the metaphysical bearing of whatever dark forces were driving him, whether it's 
greed, gluttony, lust, vanity, envy, uh, or some combination of those feelings with, with drugs definitely being in the mix, he's done with them. Right. He's, he's buried he's, them. He's put them behind right, him. Yeah. Right. He's, he's done and they're there and that's, they're no longer part of his package. Uh, the prayer is an afterthought, right? Quick prayer. It's also, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But it's also a marker of the conclusion of the journey. That's saying, this is done. I'm closing the book on this. It's over. He's found his path. He's thankful to be through it. Uh, and his prayer here is of thanks. With that done, he's ready to return to his muse for the next cycle of becoming. So we get to, she was there in the meadow where the creek used to rise, blinded by sleep and in need of a bed. I came in from the east with the sun in my eyes. I cursed her one time, then I rode on ahead. So the setting with the rising creek, I'm really not sure about. But with all the pyramid and ISIS references, it wouldn't take a lot of convincing for me, or it wouldn't take a lot of convincing for someone to convince me that this was a another reference to the to the Crescent Valley or you know along the Nile or whatever whatever uh, Egyptian setting you want to have where the creek used to rise. Famously, the Nile did that, does that. But I'm not sure it needs to be a physical place. As as again, I don't think ISIS is a physical person. It could just be a place that he feels comfortable, a, a sort of pastoral setting. Uh, the second line, I think, is very easy to overlook, but I think it's vital. Uh, I always assumed that blinded by sleep was an idiom that I just wasn't familiar with, that it was some some phrase that he picked up somewhere that meant something to some people, like like losing your, like uh, the REM song, Losing My Religion. I had no idea that was a saying until that song, and it just means to be at your at the end of your rope. So I thought blinded by sleep was an idiom that I didn't get. But I think what it means is that her eyes are full of sleep, like the the crust that you get in your eyes when you're as a kid, especially when you're sleeping, that we it's typically there when we wake up, right? And those deposits are made while we're sleeping and our eyelids aren't fluttering around. They just sit there stagnant so things can collect. So Isis has been sleeping. That's the that's the the insinuation here. She's been sleeping. But he follows it up with in need of a bed, which means that she's been sleeping, but not restfully or, or sleeping in a like standing up or whatever, however you want to, whatever position you want to put her in. It hasn't been a curled up under a comforter, restful night's sleep. Uh, I, and I also think the description is meant to represent a certain level of worry about whether the narrator was going to make it back to her. Uh because at the end of the day, she's still got sleep in her eyes. Uh, at, at, well, she's got sleep in her eyes at the end of the day. It's not like it's not like this is dawn. She's just waking up. It's the end of the day. It's not the time to be waking up. Uh, but she is clearly distraught. Uh, so again, uh, sorry, not again, but to to address the end of the day piece, um, because I just stated that it was, and maybe that's not clear to everybody. So we have to assume for the purposes of the story that all this traveling happens very quickly, right? The whole story takes place. He travels overnight from whatever town he was in to the ice covered pyramids. Um, and then turns around and comes back to be here on the fourth, which we're assuming we have to assume is not that far off. So he's coming in from the East with the sun in his eyes. So the sun is in the West, which means it's setting. That's the, it's the end of the day. So, at this point, we have to assume that he is making it back to Isis at the end of the day on the fourth. This is this is exactly when he needs to get there 
because come sunrise, it'll be the fifth and it'll be time to the next time we wed. Mm-hmm. And the last line, uh, the one that says, I cursed her one time and I rode up ahead. I've always taken that to mean, <laughs> and this is another, so I, I already, I already mentioned, um, Little Mermaid and you had, you had the, the Western that you referenced. Um, and now I'm going to, I'm going to reference Brokeback Mountain because it always, that line always struck me as a, I don't know how to quit you kind of feel. <laughs> like, like, I, I can't believe I'm going to do this again, but he rides forward mm-hmm. because it's, it's inevitable. They're, they're going to be together. There is no way to escape them being together. Uh, he's just got to learn the lessons he needs to, to be successful in this thing instead of struggling with it, which he's done every time in the past. Uh, and then this, this exchange is probably my favorite little, little piece of Bob's writing, maybe ever. It's one of the great couplets in all of his songs. It, it absolutely is. This is, there's so much expressed in just a couple lines and there's familiarity and there's, uh, uh just so much, there's so much that you could read into this. And I do. I mean, in case you, in case the people, if you're still listening and you haven't figured out that I'm reading into every word of this, <laughs> trust me, this part. Oh my goodness. She said, where you been? I said, no place special. She said, you look different. I said, and my, my, my preferred lyric is well, I guess. She said, you've been gone. I said, that's only natural. She said, you're going to stay. I said, if you want me to, yes. And again, <laughs> the yes on this, the yes that Bob sings. That's oh my amazing. goodness. Absolutely amazing. It is absolute. Uh, like I, I, we don't get a lot of, a, a lot of songs from Bob that exude joy, but that yes is like, I've made it. I'm here. I'm the <laughs> yeah! yes. I want to be here. Right. <laughs> right. I think that that's, I, uh, I just, but before you continue, I do want to insert yeah. this. There's this uh, amazing quote from Fiona Apple about uh, this line and it's from an interview she did on pitchfork where she talks about desire and she says on the song isis bob sort of gave me my sectional sexual awakening a little bit when he goes she said you look different and i said well i guess she said you're gonna stay i said if you want me to yes when he says well i guess i was like "Ooh." <laughs> <laughs> it is insane that this this verse has been rewritten for bobdylan.com that is, i can't believe that that this got futzed with because i don't know i just to me it's like he, he has to know that the, if you want me to yes well i guess is just such a great couple of lines and on oh, bobdylan.com it's changed to you look different i said well not quite you've been mm-hmm. gone i said it's only natural you're going to stay yeah i just might well, and I think, but yeah, isn't that the lyrics that are that are on? Uh, isn't that the way he sings it on Desire? No. Okay. No, he says yes. Oh no, he okay. does the yeah. <laughs> right. I wasn't sure because I did see that the lyrics were changed on uh, on the website, and I yep. again yep. pretty much exclusively listened to the version from uh, from Biograph. So right. I just assumed they were different on the album. Um, so at this point, and yes, those other the, the substitute lines are not. Uh, as impactful for certain. I just might. No, no, no. So finally we've, we've arrived at the meeting, right? We're back to this place where, uh, where they, they, they come together, right? He rode back because he loves ISIS. He loves creating. He loves the process as an artist of creating and, and making music. 
but he's also in in cycles weary of it too right he was just burned by being creative scorned by those that were supposed to love his creation so even though he's back where he wants to be the conversation between them is is noticeably guarded uh he he just sang a, a five minute song about the adventure he was on but but when she asks he says it's not worth mentioning right i mean that's not healthy relationship communication i i think he doesn't want her to know that he's come to see that she was right about his recklessness. You know, there's still that, I think we all still carry or will always carry a little bit of pride in us that says, uh, even when I know you're right, I don't want to give you all the, <laughs> all the credit for pointing me in the right direction. So, <laughs> so yes, I was reckless. Yes, I was careless. And yes, you were right about all those things, but I'm not going to cop to you being right. So I'm just going to say, well, you know, I've been around. So maybe, maybe it's that he's trying to, um, trying to control how much she knows about what he's been through. It's possible because she's going to now fuel his next creative iteration. And I don't think he wants what he just went through to be part of that. I don't think he wants the taint of, of the Royal Albert Hall concert to be, to be part of his next. Uh, a metamorphosis, but it also may be too personal to be shared, because, which would which would be ironic because if this was the case, uh, that would make this a song about a story that he doesn't want to make into a song, <laughs> right? Like he just told the story, and here's his creative muse, and he's like, no, no, we're not going to talk about that as he's singing the song about talking about that. So it's very <laughs> like there's some Ryan Reynolds fourth wall stuff going on here that. That uh, that I'm not sure he intended, but that's one way to look at it. So the important thing here is to is to note uh, that he has come to understand as he's standing before ISIS now. Uh, we we hear his response of, uh, "You look different." Well, I guess, or or, uh, well, not quite. Whichever lyric you want to go with, I think there he's saying, "I'm still me. I'm still the the, the inside is still the same." Right, I washed my clothes, so I may look different, but it's still me. But it, but it, this this part of the song makes me think very much of the the uh, oh the the adage the the saying that that a man never steps into the same river twice, right? Because he's not the same man, and it's not the same river. Uh, and that's kind of where we're at here. Is he's back? He's reengaging with his muse. He's going to start creating music again in a different way. He's not the same, and the process is not going to be the same, or the or the the art is not going to be the same. It just can't be, given what he's experienced and what he's learned. Uh, then that's why I think everyone prefers the "Well, I Guess" lyric instead of instead of uh, "Well, Not Quite." I, I also think part of it again is the performance, is the mm-hmm. the, the shruggy delivery and the pause yeah. that he puts. Well, I guess you know, like it's it sure. He's singing it, but it sounds very conversational, and uh, it's incredibly charming just the way he does right. it. Oh, it absolutely is. And, and and who, which which of us haven't had that conversation? Which of us haven't had somebody say, "Hey, you know, have you lost weight?" Like, uh, well, you know, maybe I guess. <laughs> you know, like we're trying. It's like a like a humble brag almost, not quite, but but where somebody's saying you've grown, and he's just trying to be cool about it, like, yeah, mm-hmm. well, you know, I guess. <laughs> Uh, so the, uh, the third line, which is, she says, you've been gone. You've been gone. It's only natural. So, uh, at that point, he's talking about, 
uh, things being cyclical in nature, right? There are, and, and it's all like, it's all, it's all coming back together with, there are times that he's creating and thus wed to Isis as his muse. Like he can't, he can't get away from her. And then there are times that he's not. And it's natural for him to take pauses in the creative process. It's natural to go through a flurry of creation. And famously, Bob's written a ton of songs in a very short time and then taken a long break where he maybe was still writing songs, but not at the same intensity or for some people, maybe not at the same level of quality that that he did at, at, at different periods. So it's, again, it's natural to take that pause when you're a creative person. Uh, the, the, the act of creation itself is by most descriptions, all consuming it's time, it's attention, it's emotion, it's money. Uh, creation requires all of that. So when the muse hits, the artist can't think of much else. And that intensity, right? When you think about uh, being hyper-focused like that on something, it can't last. It can't be maintained consistently over the long term. You have to do it when it's there, when the inspiration hits, and then you got to take a breath. You got to, you know, replenish and 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 reassess and learn and grow and then go at it again. Which 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 is why he says it's only natural. I went mm-hmm. away. It's only natural. Uh, so that takes us to the next set of lines, uh, the last set of lines, I believe. Uh, Isis, oh Isis, you mystical child. What drives me to you is what drives me insane. <laughs> I still can remember the way that you smiled on the fifth day of May in the drizzling rain. And again, rain, rain is, he, he absolutely lays into that word. Uh, the drizzling with, rain. <laughs> yeah, almost with as much passion of the yes, but yeah, not quite. So uh, here, the last verse, right? Here's the narrator getting whimsical, right? He names his love for his muse, right? A mystical, unconventional, guileless force outside of our understanding, this mystical child. What drives him to pursue creative endeavors is the same things that ultimately drive him crazy. I can relate to that. Yeah, everyone can. Again, this is why this song is so popular, like you said, among the, 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 the most... I don't want to call them inexperienced. Like we're not talking about the people that that dig down deep into the deep cuts, but right. people that that like you said just get below the surface of the hits. Everybody loves the song because it is that relatable. So partly what drives me crazy is is the creating for creation's sake, but also to have others appreciate him as an artist, right? Because ultimately, yes, artists make art for for themselves. They want to make art that they appreciate, that that they are moved to make. But we all want to feel love and admiration <laughs> for what we like. We're like we're like Doctor Frankenstein, you know. We we make something. We're not making it to be a a pariah. We want to make something that people celebrate, that that yeah. bring people together, that 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 they uh, even if they don't like celebrate us for making it, that the the creation itself brings joy to people. That's what we want when we create something. Yeah, we're putting in out general. into the world for a reason, right? Right, exactly. He wants to be loved, and he creates things for people to love. And I believe he was badly hurt when it seemed like people were hating him and his creative choices. You know, the whole going electric. I mean, that was such a such a difficult time, I would imagine, for him to go from being everyone's darling to trying to grow as an artist and experiment in a new and different way, which... By the way, we know now that Bob was always a rock and roll guy. 
he was always into Elvis and and Little Richard and and that style of music. He just fell into folk as a as something he could do right away, um, and was obviously very good at that too. But mm-hmm. but he was always a fan of the of rock and roll music. So here he is trying to. He's finally reached a point in his career where he can do the music that he's always been a fan of, and half of his fan base hates him now. <laughs> Like how crazy is that? And arguably, he's writing some of his best songs. How do you how do you put that much effort and and parts of your soul into your music to have people boo you? Yeah, or not just reject it angrily, right? And and not. I mean, it, it takes a special person to like. If I if I'm a fan of a band and they go in a direction I don't like, well, that's easy. I don't go to the concert. I don't buy the you know. I don't stream the music. I don't. I just lose interest. But he had people buying tickets to go to his shows to boo him. Like that's that's special. That's that's a special level of of anger that these people had for him. And I don't think he understood why. I don't think he appreciated being put in a box and couldn't fathom why people expected him to stay there. So uh in this verse, in the last the last little bit here. He's talking about the, the intricate dance of marriage, separation, frustration, and love. Uh, remembering uh, the way that you smiled on the day of their wedding to me is saying, I still remember what it felt like to have that creative synergy coursing through me and the ethereal joy I felt at realizing I created a song, right? That's just that very basic nature of creation. I created this song. Uh, it, if this is a, as you alluded to at the, at the very beginning of the, of the show, if this is a song about marriage, then it's about a marriage of a artist to creation and inspiration. And I feel like I am disconnected. <laughs> wow, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Man, I told you. I told you it was a lot. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to need time to unpack all that. D- there are some points that you... I connected with you more than others, but I, sure. I, I, I totally understand what you're saying. Like, I get it. Like, I hear it and I go, yeah, that I like this interpretation. Um, I will say on a, you know, on a slightly more, as you say, surface level about some of this stuff, like only, maybe not only, but Bob Dylan is one of the few people I think that could tell a story like this that is basically kind of, you know, as you talk about on the surface, right? A shaggy dog story. Because he leaves this woman, they go out on this crazy adventure, and right. nothing really happens. I right. mean, they go, you know, he goes out to find this. Oh, we're going to find these jewels, and there's a there's a pyramid, and we're going to cut through. It. And then there's no body, and there's no jewels. Oh well, right. I guess I'll just go home then. I mean, right. I I've seen movies that have that turn, and to me, it like just deflates the movie. Now, part of <laughs> part of it has got to be that acoustic piano that starts it. Because da dun 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 da dun dun like it just dry that piano is just propelling you forward across the song. And I think Absolutely. And, and uh works so well. And Scarlett does a fantastic job. Yeah. Uh that uh, her her playing is uh every bit as influential as the as the piano driving the song, I think. Yeah. Her her highlighting different different aspects, different uh different sections of the song, I think, really brings an emotional an emotional setting to the story. And, Absolutely. and I've got, if you, if you will indulge me for just a second, 
Uh, you've, you've come this far. <laughs> I have not done that at yeah. this point. You've, you've come this far. I've got a couple. So like I said, I wrote all this out to, to convince my friend that this, this is, is what a manifesto, the song's about. Pete. This, this, right. this, I'm sorry. Well, this is a okay. okay. I feel better about, about using that term now. Um, <laughs> but I've got a couple questions here that I wrote, I think for myself. So, uh, the, well, the first question is, is the guide someone in his professional life that was giving him bad advice? Uh, this is possible, but I'm not nearly knowledgeable enough about his business dealings to make that connection. Uh, so I don't know if that's, uh, if that's something he had going on in his life at the time, some, some agent or manager or some producer that was, that was pushing him in a bad direction. Mm. That that's another possible. Yeah. I feel like post Albert Grossman, he didn't have anybody like that. At that point, he was so established that. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. And then the other one is, it says capitalizing of North and East in the lyrics isn't normal, right? Cause in the official lyrics, North and East are capitalized so that they're not really referring to direction as much as they're referring from a place, a specific location. Right. Yeah. Right. So to say that he rode in from the East uh, with a lowercase E would be to say that you're facing West to say from the East with a capital E is to imply something is from Asia, maybe, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which, uh, you know, could again not to keep harping on the bardo thing but that would be kind of where that idea would come from so is the is the capitalization indicative of places that's a that's a question that i don't have an answer for um <laughs> and i i'm cracking myself up as i read the last line i wrote here is i don't know and this is going on long enough that i'm not trying to figure that out <laughs> So even I, I even I got tired of my shit. <laughs> uh, I will say, I mean, we, we talked about this on the the first time we we discussed this song, but in terms of the live performances, but you talked about that you liked the one on Biograph so much, and of course, a mm-hmm. bunch of them got uh, put up on the the Rolling Thunder review box set, mm-hmm. uh, even even in the the rehearsal version, which is kind of a fun uh, alt take of it to hear it. It's kind of much more laid back. It doesn't have that driving you know piano in it. Right. But so he did this song 46 times between 75 and 76. Right. And we all, we've all heard them. They're increasingly histrionic, you know, if you, especially that very, if you want me to, yeah, like it's really going, <laughs> they're speeding it up and speeding it up and speeding it up. And look, we all know that Bob is not in the market. He just isn't interested in delivering to the crowd whatever the crowd might be. He's never thrown his shoes into the crowd. You know, he's just not interested. In delivering something that we willing right. for its own sake. That's just not right. his point of view. That said, I think since he spends all of his time at a keyboard now, if he really wanted to drive an audience nuts, he would whip this one out after almost, you know, 45 years of not oh, playing I it. I mean, I can you imagine if he was playing? To a crowd that really knows him, and he starts going da dun 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 da. I mean, people would lose their mind to hear him it, sing this again. It would ab- it would be a a a bring down the house encore yep. song for him. To yep, play. yep. And it I would, sure would I would love to hear how he sings this with his current voice. Right. Yep. It would be yep. very interesting, and I think very uh, entertaining to hear. Yeah. Oh, it would be, it would absolutely be amazing. It really would. Like I said, Pete, I need time to unpack all this. You know, <laughs> I really do. I mean, it, it's, it's, it, it, that's what's great about the work in general. This song in particular is that there's enough here that you can see all that in there and it's not like crazy pants. And you're like, no, I see what this is. 
Right. You know, I mean, Bob's often singing to his muse when it sounds like he's singing to a person, but he's singing to his muse. He's singing to himself. And so right. you could hear I, a lot of that here, you know? Um, and, and, and I, right. I don't think I just, this song is always meant. So it's been what well, I'd probably discovered biograph at this point, maybe almost 30 years ago. And, uh, from early on, I felt like it was a, it was a transformation song. It was a, it was a journey song. It was something I've, I'm going through a, I'm going through a thing. And at the end of it, I'm not the same as I was when I started. Right. Cause as you're talking about, like if you just read it on the surface level, then there really isn't much here. Cause it's a guy right. that goes out and almost has something happen to him, but not really. <laughs> I mean, the, right. the, the real transformation is the guy that dies. That's his right. transformation. So you're like, well, okay. Well, if then if in this story, nothing really happens, then what's really going on? And right. that leads into what you're talking about, that it's a personal transformation. That it's, you know, he's being, you know, he's not busy being born, he's busy dying. You know, he's yeah. going, he's transforming himself into a new version. And it's kind of funny. I mean, we have to wrap up here. We've been going on a, a yeah, while, but like, I know. you know, I apologize. it's, well, that's what it is. But, but like, you know, there are times where he has discovered some new approach to music that by the time he's ready to deliver it to his audience, he's moved on to the next thing. Right. right. And so we're, we're getting it after he's already kind of discovered it and moved on. And a lot of his audience, and I will, I, I will blame myself in, in, in times here where I'm like, you want him to keep doing that thing because you like it so much. You know, you're mm-hmm. like, I mean, I listened to Nashville Skyline just the other day. I bought it on vinyl. Uh-huh. And I was like, man, I really wish there had been like another whole record of this. Like this, yeah. this album is so great and so short. That mm-hmm. I wish there had been a couple of Nashville Skylines, but I realized, and, and there is a certain relationship with the, the artist where you kind of want to say, geez, you found the thing. Just keep doing the thing because it's really good. But if you are someone that follows your muse and you follow it wherever it takes you, whether it takes you into, um, singing Frank Sinatra songs or, uh, born again Christianity or whatever, or mm-hmm. being a country act right at the height of uh, the summer of love, you can't replicate it because the muse is telling you to go somewhere else and you're kind of helpless to it. Right. You know, and and I, and I also believe I, uh, I have this, (laughs) I have this facet of my personality um, that I will absolutely kill myself to work on something until somebody tells me to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think that I perceive that Bob is kind of the same way. I'm going to write these incredible protest songs. And then people are telling me I need to write protest songs. And I'm like, you know what? Uh, no, no more. I'm going to write something else. And, you know, now he's this big rock and roll star. And, you know, that's a, that I'm not sure is really a, a case of people telling him to do more of it, but someone had to be telling him, you're the biggest artist in the world. We need another album just like this. Mm-hmm. And he was like, uh, you know what? No, mm-hmm. no, for a lot of reasons, but probably a lot because you want me to. And that gets back to what you said. He's not going to give us what we want to hear. He's going to give us what he wants to give us. Right. And it's up to us to follow him on his journey, not him dance to our, our, uh, uh, desires. Right. Make, oh, the good, good, uh, good pun there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like make another Highway 61. Oh, well, okay. You know, (laughs) okay. No pressure there. Yeah. No pressure there. Um, so, okay. I mean, I, I, I could keep going on with you about this, but we do have to wrap this up. Yes, we really yes, do. Yes. And I, I appreciate the level of 
thought that you brought <laughs> into this? I really the, the do. I mean, yeah. No, 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 no. Not there's no not even a hint of sarcasm there at all. I really do appreciate, as I said at the top of the show, I really appreciate the fact that you made the donation, that you put yourself into that, you know, willing to do that to 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 be considered for it, but then you put this much effort into thinking about this. And so uh, I really do appreciate it. So but the, and I'm going to ask you this because we got to wrap up the show, but I am yes. going to ask you the exit question, uh-huh. which for you is going to be what bootleg series would you like to hear next? And the reason I think about that is because I think even after 18 bootleg series, we still don't have like the desire sessions. We still don't have that. We have, we had a little bit of it in volume one and we have the Rolling Thunder tour, but we don't, you know, there are alternate takes of ISIS. There are alternate mm. takes of Hurricane. There's a disco version of Hurricane that are not officially <laughs> out there. And so to me, it's like that needs to be a thing. That need, you know, Maybe they need to do finally like the street legal slash desire sessions or something. But that's what made me think of. So, so what what bootleg series? They go to you, Pete, and they, they're like, please put down your manifesto and tell us what <laughs> it is that you would want to hear. What bootleg series would you want to hear? Oh my goodness, Rob! That's a that's a really big question. I am uh, a little bit obsessed with uh, with Rough and Rowdy Ways. Sure, uh, I think that his I think that this album is again an- another cycle for him coming out of that Sinatra period mm-hmm. um, and getting back to writing his songs. Uh, and I don't know; I have no idea what kind of what kind of stuff did not make the record, how much stuff they cut, uh, any of that, but. But I find that uh, the, the creation that went into that album, such a solid, I mean, dude's almost 80. And that album is, is start to finish just incredible. There's not, there's not really a bad song on it. And for him to go out on tour at, to support this album, which is, I don't believe he's ever done before. Uh, he's always toured, but I don't think he's ever just played the songs from one album. No, he's uh, never named a tour after an album. He's never right. done that. He's not not done the Love and Theft tour. You know, he's never right, done. Right, that. right. I I would love to hear, uh, and this is recency bias. I understand that, but I would love to hear the stuff that didn't make the cut for that album. I would love to hear. Oh, it. Yeah, there's probably another because it's Bob. There's probably another six or eight songs that we'll argue till we're blue in the face should have been on this album <laughs> instead of something else. <laughs> Um, How could he the, not put that on rough and ready way? Uh, right, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I just I'm so enamored with with the style and the and the substance of what he put together in this album that I have to believe that there's some some gold hiding there in the shadows. And the old, don't get me wrong, the old, like you said, the, some of that old stuff, absolutely, I want to hear it. But but I, um, yeah, I'm just so fascinated by what he's able to do uh, right now. Uh, given, given his age, given the, the, you know, all the stuff we've been through, how he can continue to create such incredible music. Um, it's really, it's really stunning. And I would, again, just love to hear what, what jewels did not make it. I mean, we had a, we had a, like a 35 minute song. We probably could have fit six more songs in place of that. Not that I want that song gone, but I would imagine that robbed us of, of, uh, quite a few takes that that could have been included i'm I'm presumably we'll get to it we'll get it someday you know we'll get it someday the bootleg series but yeah no that's absolutely i'm sure there's uh i i we talked about this on twitter where somebody listed their top five bob dylan albums and i put rough and rowdy ways at number five 
Mm-hmm. Because partly, they, they, as you say, the whole album is great, but I think Key West is already one of my top like ten favorite songs of his. Absolutely, and it, to me, it lifts the whole record just by the just by that. And like to me, I'm like, that's a perfect song. It's a perfect, it's a perfect, perfect song. And I'm sure the bootleg series of that of Rough and Randy, when it comes out ten years from now, they'll be like the marimba version of Key West. You know <laughs> that you know that they're like right. what. Right. You know, uh, I don't want to. I, I would prefer not to hear him croon any of these, but you know, if that's if if he felt like pulling a little Sinatra into into this uh, recording, yep. I guess that'd be okay. Yep, absolutely. Well, Pete, thank you so much again. Thank you for the donation to Equality Texas. I really do appreciate it, and thank you for uh, giving this song such incredible consideration and and uh detailing it here on the show man that's absolutely fantastic so thank you so much for coming back yeah thank you robin and again thank you for for using your platform to to uh (laughs) to boost the signal of of organizations (laughs) like that 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 are standing up for people and are uh trying to prevent bad things from happening you know there's a there's a quote that i've always liked that uh that says that that in order for for evil to flourish uh, all it takes is for good men to do nothing. And it would be super easy for you to do nothing. Uh, instead, you chose to to put this information out there and challenge the listeners to step up and, and put a little money into the effort. So so I applaud you for that, sir. Thank you. Like I said, I hope we can we, we can do more and leverage the power of the show to do more things like that. The, uh, the last time I was on, we talked about uh, the podcast that I was getting ready to start that mm-hmm. I had not I had not put out yet. My my uh, my. My co-host and I had not officially published yet. We currently have two seasons that are out there available. Um, so don't follow me. Like there's no reason to follow me. I don't do anything, but, uh, if, if the listeners want to check out, think if you like hearing me drone on this entire time, then check out my podcast. Um, it's called Think Significantly. There's two seasons of content out there. We're on break right now because we're both very busy. Uh, but hopefully we'll come back and have more content, uh, eventually. But uh, yeah, go out and give us a listen, and we're on all the socials as well. Thanks significantly. What is that show about? Tell people what it's about. Oh, it's about it's discussing uh, different aspects of of psychology and culture. We do like a we do like a month long theme of of happiness, how to get happier, uh, uh, what influences our happiness, what what uh, physical spaces uh, do uh, make us more happy. Um, we talk about team building. We talk about uh, psychological phenomenon like uh Bader Meinhof and how that affects us uh how it can be used for us or against us um just a lot of things that we that we deal with every day as people and maybe don't have a name for it or don't understand why it has the impact it does we kind of dig into that and and talk about it in a way that that hopefully generates some thought for the mm-hmm. listeners I think you've all given us an insight as to how you came across this idea for ISIS <laughs> there, that that be uh perhaps <laughs> <laughs> so okay you heard you heard him everybody go go check the show out and of course as i said you can find this show over on twitter at pod underscore dylan and you can find all the back episodes on our website fmpods.com where you can subscribe and get a bunch of bonus content and some other great things uh over there again so check it out at fmpods.com so that is going to do it thanks everybody for listening and we will see you later bye oh my said the royal sorcerer to Hatshepsut. With this amulet, you and your descendants are endowed by the goddess Isis with the powers of the animals and the elements. You will soar as the falcon soars, run with the speed of gazelles, 
and command the elements of sky and earth.